Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. There's sort of latest stats for about one in eight people experience food insecurity. And so if you, you know, think of any room of people that you know, that's, that brings it really home and very close. That child who starts the day with a grumbling stomach cannot focus on those kind of four hours of lessons before lunch. And some of our teachers tell us that they notice kids glancing at the clock or kind of going to the door to see if it's lunchtime. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. About food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Ending childhood hunger. This is one of the most pressing conversations of the moment. The extent of childhood hunger and food insecurity that exists not in third world countries, but right here in the UK is absolutely astounding. One in eight people deem themselves food insecure. And when you couple that with the fact that a third of food is wasted along various parts of the supply chain, you see this big issue, this huge opportunity to make change. Now, to open up this discussion, I'm inviting representatives from two incredible organizations working to tackle these issues in their unique ways for a fairer and more compassionate society, one where nobody is left unseen nor hungry. And rather than complaining or just pointing out a desperate situation, I really want to shine a light on these incredible charities. So, First, I speak with Alison Walsh. She's commercial director with responsibility for fundraising, marketing, communications, and volunteering at Fairshare. She's got 25 years of experience in the food and retail sector. And so she possesses an incredible wealth of industry and consumer knowledge that she is bringing to Fairshare. And later in the pod, I also speak with Emily Fretza, a former primary school teacher, and Alyssa Remtula from Magic Breakfast, a registered charity providing healthy breakfasts to children in the UK who arrive at school too hungry to learn. We talk about the foundations of both charities and the scale of the issue in food insecurity amongst children and families in the UK. There are 2 million children 
in the UK that suffer hunger. And Magic Breakfast, for one, extend their expert support to their partners across almost a thousand different schools, including primary, secondary, special educational schools and pupil referral units in the most disadvantaged areas of England and Scotland. We talk about the overview of the problem, what we mean by food insecurity, what that means and how much of an issue it is and how it's increased since the pandemic. But we also make sure that you know this is not a pandemic issue. This is very much a pre-pandemic problem that has extended for the last few decades. We also talk about how to tackle the stigma surrounding food insecurity and the logistical issues around food redistribution. And also, and this is perhaps the main point, how to get involved with both Fair Share, Magic Beans and other charitable organisations doing fantastic work across the UK and beyond. So if you're interested, I would highly recommend you check out the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com, sign up to the newsletter, and we'll give you more ways in which to interact with these wonderful initiatives. But for now, I hope this is enlightening and educational, and also it gives you some hope that something is being done about what is otherwise quite a desperate situation that is only getting worse. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Alison, thank you so much for making the time uh, in your schedule to chat with me on the pod today. I'm super excited to talk about the subject and to talk a bit about you, if that's all right. That's absolutely great. And, and thank you for inviting me and Fair Share on. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Definitely. Well, uh, why don't we talk a bit about um, yourself to start off with um, as your you know, executive position in the, in the charity and your background is, is really varied. And, and you, you might look at your background in terms of the brands that you've worked with, that's, that's quite, it's quite premium. What, what are you doing in a, in a food insecurity <laughs> charity? And, and, you know, how was your journey through that? But why don't we touch on that and your, your experience in the food industry at large? That would be great. Well, uh, to, to start off with, there is a Barbara Streisand song, and I forget the actual title of it, but the words of it are something about, I wouldn't change a single thing that's happened over all of my life because it got me here to you. It's a love song. And I do rather feel like that about Fair Share. I've had 25 years of solid marketing and sales and, and comms communications in a variety of organisations, like you say, but it, it's all brought me to Fair Share through a love of food. My role at Fair Share, and I think I've, I've been here five years this week, so it's a fantastic anniversary to have. I'm commercial director and I oversee everything that's marketing, fundraising and volunteering. And the idea really behind that is, is that whatever ask you have of somebody, whether it's for their time to volunteer or some sort of support um, or even to make a donation, it's a very similar sort of connection, communication and and ask. So you do it in a similar sort of way. So for, for me, that really matches all of my skill sets. But the whole passion around everything that's food and the injustice of people not being able to access food or not being able to enjoy food when Food is something that, you know, we celebrate birthdays with or, you know, you sit around the table and you relax and you chat with people. Food is there at the heart of everything we do. And for that not to be possible for so many people in the UK was so wrong for me that when I saw the vacancy come up with Fair Share, it was something I wanted to do. But I've worked in retailers and, and mass food producers and I saw that there was surplus 
And no one ever sets out to create surplus. It's just a byproduct of mass food production. And, and that's what the UK has. So the idea of being a bit like a womble and turning that surplus or that waste into treasure, which is so valued and so needed, was just a fantastic opportunity. And, and that's what I love about Fair Share is taking something that one part of the industry doesn't need anymore and it's safe to eat and it's delicious and it's it's food that you and I would have at home in our fridges. There's nothing remotely bad or off about it, but turning it into social good is just the most brilliant, but actually very simple concept. And, and that's why it works so well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to, I, 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 love, I love the analogy, by the way, the womble. <laughs> I think I'm going to use that for sure. <laughs> but it's, for, for me, it's, it's, it's interesting to see where, the the attraction is from from someone who's come from like a, a larger commercial sort of sphere to move into something that's charitable. A lot of people on the face of it might think, oh, it's a bit of a step down almost. But actually, you know, it's an opportunity to contribute in such a grand way. And I think we it's almost a, a metaphor for how we should look at charities at large because I think we need to see charitable organisations as incredible organizations that add value to people's CVs rather than something that you do if you have time to. I think that's a really interesting thought and I, I'm conscious that maybe in previous generations going to work for a charity is maybe something that people might have done later in life rather than it being a career choice and and I think we're in a different place now and certainly for me it was having the experience of seeing the art of the possible and the potential because I would walk into rooms real you know massive chiller rooms full of pasta drying and knowing that a third of that wouldn't actually end up on the table somewhere and that was just the nature of needing to produce enough to get it to a distribution center for a retailer on time in the right sort of quantities and then onto the shelves so there was enough choice for consumers you have to go big to to meet all of those needs and yet knowing that actually all the nutrients that go into making that food and all of the time and the effort and the energy wouldn't actually get onto somebody's table there's another option or there's another avenue to be taken with that food so for me it was a brilliant opportunity of taking some real work life experience but then bringing it to a charity who could then use it in a different sort of way so i said i suppose it's sort of using resources in a different way yeah it's it, it's almost like you know how an entrepreneur spots an opportunity you're looking at uh, a, an issue in the marketplace or an untapped opportunity an untapped sort of resource that you can redistribute and yes you can make money from it but also you can actually utilize it for social good which is exactly what fair share is doing but before we we go into fair share a bit more i, I want to know a bit more about your personal experience in the food industry well where did you get started um, well, actually, I did start at the very beginning in shampoo because the, those were the days when if you wanted to get into marketing, you went into sort of the beauty products and, you know, shampoo, those sort of big brands. So really, gotcha. that, that was to cut my teeth and to get those commercial skills because I did apply to a charity just after leaving university. And they said, actually, can you go get some commercial skills and come back to us in a couple of years time? So that was exactly what I did. Um and, and taking those different elements of commercial experience. And I worked on shampoo with Tesco, with Marks and Spencers, with Asda. So that real retailer experience has stood me in very good stead coming around now and still working with those exact same retailers, but from a very different point of view. But yes, I started off in shampoo 
uh, went into a cancer charity because that's that's what I wanted to do. Got some experience there. Missed some of my French because I studied French at university and had worked with French companies in my first job and then moved into wine glasses and wine because uh, those are obviously related. But all the time was... <laughs> was volunteering for charities all the way through because I did want to live a life with, you know, mission and things that I believed in that perhaps working in shampoo doesn't always give you. Um, And then had a a really sort of sensible path into the food industry. Um, I worked on ready meals with Sainsbury's and for a brilliant food company called Bella Zoo, who do lovely um, oils and balsamic vinegars and things like that. I really like Bella Zoo. They've got really good quality products. Yeah, they do. They've also got a great CSR program and they fund education schemes um, in Morocco. So it's all about giving back to the communities that help give you, you know, the product that you can then sell to consumers. So I love that combination of not just taking from the ground, but giving something back to communities as well. So a real sort of history of uh, sort of intertwined passions and, and career at the same time. Um, and then then into sort of high retail at Fortnum & Mason, which was great. Um, and you know, their Christmas is, is like no other. Um, and then after that, saw, saw Fair Share and that really, really sort of spoke to me. It, it's, it's interesting to note that your career has, has had charitable involvement peppered throughout it. Um, I, I wonder where that that sort of need for mission and, and need for purpose sort of came from? Is that something that was instilled in you throughout childhood or uh, some experiences? I would say sort of coming into A-level years, I, I became more aware of the injustices of, of life, uh, set up an Amnesty Inter- International um, Society at school, and then during my time at university was part of the Amnesty group. All of my closest friends there were part of the apartheid groups, Many people were vegan and actually they remain my closest friends today. So I think politically and campaigning, that was what united us and was at the heart of what really made us tick. So I think you know, it's great that we all have that in common still. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's fascinating because it, it just seems as if like th- that might have been the case considering the number of times you've you sort of dipped in and out of charitable work and stuff. So I, I got this image of you now <laughs> around your A-levels, you know, campaigning and getting political and, you know, looking at injustices. I'm sure lots of students do do sort of want to save the world. And it's just it's finding the right way of doing that. Um, and, and just to to give an insight, you know, during this this long career I, I've had, there were points where I felt really challenged around what I was doing for my work and whether that was giving me my sense of purpose. So I did have some bit of coaching and a bit of mentoring and did one of those visual boards about what it is that's important to you. And I couldn't quite express what it was that I thought I wanted, but I drew a picture of a nun because to me that represented service. And um, I don't know about the chastity or some of those other elements of it, but... <laughs> But for me, that being of service is is very much what I do want to do. And so even though I work for Fair Share, I volunteer in, in lots of other things in my, my own life as well. And I think that's that's just what makes us all tick, really. And particularly this yeah, past yeah. year, everyone's everyone's done something really helpful for communities. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think, you know, this year on a global scale, no no one ever has felt so much empathy for other people and actually become privy to you know, how privileged we are, but but also, you know, the, the opportunities for giving are huge as well. I, I wonder when you did your vision board, what, how long ago was that? Um, about six years ago. Okay, because I, I had um, 
a friend of mine, Dr. Tara Swar, on the podcast recently, she's written a book called The Source, and it's all about the science behind manifesting your perfect life. So it's what it's described as, it's kind of like the secret, but the science version, because she's a psychiatrist and she's studied neuroscience and she lectures at MIT and stuff. So um, it's, it's very interesting because I've started vision boarding myself and it's I, I've come up with with strange analogies as well, but maybe not as uh, as uh, out there as a nun. But <laughs> one of the things is a mountain. Uh, just this this mountain comes up, and I, and I I feel it's like you know I'm trying to climb something. I'm trying to achieve something that appears to be a mountain at this point in time. What that what's on the other side of that mountain? I'm yet to discover. But um, it's interesting you mentioned that. Yes. Well, I wouldn't claim to be any expert or or particular believer in summoning things and that side of it but I I do believe there's got to be something around if you become more conscious of what it is you're looking for you become more aware of those opportunities and where to find them so also on my my vision board I had a baguette so something to do with food and a mouth and to do with talking and communication so so really the fair share scenario matched all of those things and and therefore it was easier when it came along to understand that that's why I thought it would be right for me. Wow. Whether anyone believes in manifesting your dreams or not, it sounds, <laughs> that anecdote sounds pretty convincing for me. <laughs> well, and I'll be handing out the name of my uh, my coach and mentor at the end of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do. Please. I'm really interested in in, in how coaching and mentoring um, actually helps. I mean, I've, I've got a coach at the moment. I never thought I'd say that, you know, as someone who works in the NHS and uh, you know, j- just medicine and stuff, I wouldn't feel the need for a coach. But I, I found it absolutely profound what comes up uh, in, in the discussions. Just having a soundboard that someone far enough removed from you such that they don't have those preconceptions of what you should be doing or what they think that you should be doing, um, I, I think is really liberating. It's so liberating. It takes you away from the friend conversations that you have where someone will say, of course, you're wonderful for that, with that you know, without the filter on there. And the other side of someone who holds you to account to say, well, you said you really were interested in this, but nothing you've chosen over the past five applications demonstrates that. So it's a great independent uh, reaction to what it is that that you're discussing. So I, I think it's a great opportunity if people can. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I think yeah, there's there's tons of opportunities to connect with people uh, these days across the UK. You know, that there's... Is, there's a new platform called Clubhouse, which is all, I don't know if you've come across it yet, but it's it's kind of like Twitter, much less noisy and everything's audio. So you, you go into rooms and you listen to people talking about a certain subject matter and it, it, it leaves one-to-one conversation that people can listen to rather than complete chatter that, you know, where you're being bombarded by adverts and stuff. And I, I, I find it a lot more... Um, relaxing an environment rather than traditional social media at the moment. I think that's definitely going to be the future for social media in any way. That sounds interesting. And it's another avenue for exploring. I did some you know, group coaching where we were blindfolded in a room with string going round it. I don't know if you've done anything like that. And no, the, no, no, no. It, it was hilarious. And it, it taught me one thing, which was having a blindfold on and going through a room of string that you have to follow in order to get to the gem or the treasure of whatever it is, which is finding what you need. The best thing to do is to put your hand up and say, 
I need help, I'm stuck, I'm lost, because that's the quickest, most efficient thing to do, rather than keeping following the string, because someone else will know something, or they'll know someone, and and that's where just not not just trying to find your own solutions all the time yourself, is where stepping out and having some of that coaching or group work or whatever it is, is really helpful. So often in projects, I think to myself, stop following the string, Alison, put your hand up, ask ask around, see who knows what. And, and that sounds great in terms of Clubhouse as well as maybe those are those sorts of opportunities, but just done virtually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could do one of those group therapy sessions right now. Unfortunately, probably COVID restrictions will prevent that from happening anytime soon. But um, I, I think that's another reason why, um, A, I enjoy doing the pod work and have a one-on-one conversation with with someone, but but also listening to pods. Like I, I, I listen to pods uh, almost every day uh, around subject matters. And I think it's that, that pared down platform where you can just listen to a singular conversation at one time. It's quite novel in today's day and age where everyone's shouting for your attention. So if you just have that pod, you know, it's, it's almost like a bit of an escapism for me. Absolutely. Um, and it goes back to what probably radio was at the beginning, which is this friendly voice in your ear telling you something interesting that you will take away. And I know then's got broken up with great music or people phoning in and doing quizzes. But actually, and I, I do love radio now and, and still is, just listening to something informs you, also helps you step away from things. And uh, I think podcasts are the modern version of that. And it's great that there are so many different ones done by interesting people who've got something to add as well. So I think we're, you know, it's a real luxury and we're spoiled for choice actually these days. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, thousands out there. Well, I could talk to you about um, psychology and and <laughs> chasing your careers and all that kind of stuff, bro. But perhaps um, we could talk before we get into Fisher's activities. Perhaps you could give us an overview of um, the the issue as it stands. I, I think now it's it's become part of the public conversation, but this is something obviously that's been going on for for decades and uh, I, I wonder if you could give us like a, a snapshot or bird's eye view of, of the, the issues that you see it uh, today. Of course yes and you're, you're absolutely right. Food insecurity, food poverty or kids going without has, has been happening from you know years and decades and, and beyond that and probably in the olden days you know you might be aware of well so and so you know they didn't have enough or it was it was grouped together as well you know they just had less than us and and you might have been aware of it but it's it's an issue that's been in our communities and amongst our friends and our neighbors but in such a covered way because people won't talk about it or didn't talk about it because of the stigma which is totally understandable and if we can make comparisons about mental illness and people starting to feel that there's you know, a more comfortable place of having those conversations. You and I know, and and people listening will know that, you know, there'll always be somebody that you know who's doing a sponsored run and, you know, will you support me and sponsor me? I'm doing it for this illness because my brother had X or my auntie had Y. You know, people wouldn't say my sister skipped a meal last week or, you know, you and, you know, I told you that my sister-in-law lost her husband. Actually, they're down a salary and they can't really afford to eat as well as pay the rent and all the rest of it. Those aren't the conversations that people have. 
And and the struggle that goes on behind that is so hard and is invisible, but the, the pandemic has brought it out into the fore because there's always been holiday hunger as an issue. And where the children who have the safety net of a free school meal then didn't have that during the summer holidays, there wasn't really a lot of talk about that or a greater awareness of it until we started doing some project work around it at Fair Share. And in fact, that came to the attention of Marcus Rashford, who came to Fair Share about this time last year and said, right, what can we do? And this was before the heart of the pandemic. But but really, it is the awareness of when trouble hits, it can hit in such a fundamental way that not having access to food, reducing the amount of food and then, you know, trying to make the most of what there is and, and eke it out are, are things that are going on in millions of family homes all across the UK. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I love the parallel you made there with um, mental health. I think, you know, if we were having this conversation perhaps 10 years ago, even as early as that, mental health definitely wouldn't have been on the agenda for the government or um, even in the sort of public sphere of it being something that is okay to talk about. Whereas now it's almost relied on, yes, celebrity culture coming out, but also, you know, having the bravery to talk about it amongst your own communities, amongst your own friends and stuff. And I think school meals and and food insecurity uh, uh, as the problem at large, I think is hopefully edging towards that same comfortability point where people are going to be a lot more approachable about the project, uh, uh, about the problem and also confident enough to talk about it as well because it is very scary i mean even when i speak to parents uh, about it in in clinic it's it's an embarrassing scenario for a lot of them to be and it's easy for me to say well you shouldn't be embarrassed about it but then again i i haven't had to you know prevent my child from 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 eating because we're trying to save for the whole week you know that that's something that i have absolutely no experience of and i i think you're right the the element of selling someone don't be embarrassed because there is this assumption that you as a parent or, or even you as an individual should be able to make it work. But but life is more precarious these days, or it feels like it's more, maybe it's always been, but the nature of employment is different and things like the gig economy and other elements where people might have a job, but it's it's zero hours and therefore you don't really know what you're going to be earning next week and therefore the inability to plan really affects those sorts of decisions that people have to make in terms of you know is it a choice between food or fuel is it is it Mm. uniforms or is it whatever and we do know that just from a purely economical point of view people are so much more at risk from the the upsets to budgeting and planning so that if the boiler breaks or you know often it's a washing machine and it's 250 pounds that can really change someone's ability to plan and budget on a very modest income anyway. So it doesn't take much to push someone into the place of, actually, I wasn't planning on spending that money and therefore it's thrown everything else out. And, you know, going to, I don't know, payday loan companies and things like that for those solutions, it's all connected. And I just think that the society that we're in these days means that those shocks are much harder to absorb because we're, we're not as well set up to do that. So I think it's, it's the time, the place that we're in. And obviously, as we've just said, you know, the pandemic has shone a much brighter spotlight on it. Yeah, I, I think those examples give an idea about what food insecurity 
means for certain people and, and, and how that can manifest. I wonder if A, there's a definition for exactly what we mean by food insecurity and B, the extent of the current problem at the moment in terms of any numbers or statistics that you're you're privy to? Well, I think the, the sort of latest stats are about one in eight people experience food insecurity. Wow. And and so if you you know think of any room of people that you know, that's that brings it really home and very close. But insecurity could be skipping meals altogether, reducing the amount of food that you or your family eats, and also then just struggling to afford good nutritional food. So it may be that on a very limited budget, yes, you are eating, but there's little value in terms of nutrients in the food that you are able to access. So it's those three different levels that contribute to to the totality of insecurity. So it's, you know, it's unpredictable, it's not great quality, and actually you're not having as much of it as really you need from a, you know, a calorific point of view. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the drivers behind food insecurity, I understand this is a, a, a very complicated subject, one that you know touches on on politics and on local government strategy, on the, the the changing face of of our tech landscape, the gig economy that you just mentioned here as well. If you could whittle down to some key drivers that you think are the reasons why we've become so food insecure in this country. I mean, those those numbers are absolutely staggering uh, for, for me to, to even get my head around. But can, can you give us some insights to, to what you think the foundations for this scenario are? They're, they're multiple, uh, unfortunately, and definitely there's, there's the economic and the societal element of work. But actually, where where Fair Share comes in and what we see, and we support a network of 11,000 charities, there's a real variety in the charities that are supported with food because of the many frailties of life. And unfortunately, people are in a place where there is domestic violence and someone needs to leave a situation and then they're going to a refuge and we're supporting the refuge with food. And in fact, knowing that there's food there for, for the mother and the children gives confidence to leave there are people suffering from addictions and making that choice between feeding a habit and feeding oneself are are things that people are thinking about all the time um there's loss and bereavement which then affects a family's ability to bring in an income so i would say as much as it's economic there are all of those other elements of life being difficult and unpredictable and and all brings about the fact that people have to choose or actually sometimes aren't getting a choice because that choice has been taken away from them for so many different reasons. Even sort of poor mental health and disability. Life is a lot more expensive if you have a disability because getting to hospital appointments may mean you've got to take a taxi rather than a bus. So so it's everything, unfortunately, in life that contributes towards this in, in different measures. But I would say it's mm. a really wide wide remit yeah I, I i like the way that you described it as the 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 frailties of life these are things unfortunately that a lot of people are going to have to go through i mean all of us with, with regard to bereavement and loss uh and the the vulnerability that uh associates itself with with, with growing old as well and, you know it's interesting I, I reflect and i see the acute side of that so when someone unfortunately comes to the hospital 
um, passes away or leaves the hospital with severe disability or presents to the hospital because of, of one of those different things. Yes, I work as a general practitioner, so I see a bit of that, but it's just a snapshot. I'm not there with them, you know, the 23 hours of the day outside of the time that they have to to interact with medical services. So it, it, it's a it's a really interesting point that I think most people perhaps would have glossed over, myself included, because we just see it as an economic issue or, or people or, or governmental problem. Yes, well, and particularly from a health point of view, as you say, we know through some of the charities that we support that where, I don't know, an elderly person has been bereaved, cooking for two people is a thing that you do. Cooking for one, actually, when just... I don't know, some people lose the energy and the enthusiasm to do it. So it might not be a financial thing that someone's not eating well. It's actually because they've lost the desire to do it. And we support some elderly lunch clubs. We're actually saying, oh, there's a lunch on the table. You know, come and meet 12 other people is a reason to go out, is a reason to connect and stops there being isolation as well. And we also know that sometimes people make appointments with GPs for the company of it. And and the opportunity to talk. So actually, when someone can go to a lunch club and mix with other people, maybe that's less time taken up for the NHS um, because someone's connected and they've they've made friendships. So actually, food as a connector is hugely valuable beyond actually the the nutrients in the food. So actually, Fresh Air sees it on a lot of different levels, um, but also health and well-being in order to make sure that people are accessing food to, to keep going. But I think there are there are lots of other layers around it as well, which which makes it really fascinating. Yeah, I can certainly attest to that. I mean, I remember in my um, first year as being a GP, I had a few regular patients that I absolutely love seeing. They're wonderful people, but they definitely did not need to be seeing me. They needed connection. They needed that societal piece. And we colloquially refer to it as tea and toe syndrome, um, something that unfortunately happens to a lot of uh, elderly men when they lose um, their their partner and they typically might have done all the cooking and then they just and they won't admit to it they won't come forward they won't even they won't talk to me about it just, but you know that there's this huge underbelly of malnutrition because they're they're relying on um, their limited skills when it comes to to cooking but also the motivation i think as well it's a very very important point um, uh, about nutrition. Yes, there's there's a real element of, I mean, even with dementia, and, and forgive me for talking about your area more, is that lack of stimulation. We believe through some of the, the groups that we've supported that people will go downhill more quickly without regular interaction. So helping people to go to a, a lunch club is great. We also know that the ability to connect, there are some mental health clubs where we've put in food for lunches so that the folks coming in for the morning session stay for lunch and the folks coming in for the afternoon session come a bit earlier. And one of the project managers that, that we're connected with said, you can hear people chatting. And before, when the morning people came in and then they went home and the afternoon people came in, they never saw each other. Here, actually, they're engaging with each other and they're making friends. So actually, they thought they were coming in for a service but they're getting the service, the support, the food and friendship that then continues outside in its own way. And that's just by making sure that there's some, you know, some soup or shepherd's pie or whatever it is, just has so many different benefits. And I just think that's incredible. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this, I, I'm a huge fan of, you know, food being a connector and it's not just the nutrition, it's the company that you have around you and the table, uh, as well as the nutrition in the actual food itself. So, you know, it definitely speaks to, to, to the way I like to think about food myself. Um, I wonder if you can give us an insight into Fairshare, what, what the origins were, where it, where it came from and what your current activities are at the moment, um, uh, because it's it's such a vast organization and there's, there's so many touch points of, of things you can do, but it'd be great to summarize it if, if possible. Yes, well, it, despite only coming into more sort of public awareness over the past couple of years, Fairshare has been going for about 26 years and, and started off as probably a lot of charity things do, as like a, a moment and a, a light bulb above somebody's head. And we were originally part of Crisis, uh, the charity, where putting on Crisis at Christmas and some of that sort of getting together with, with the large groups of people and all of the, the food that's required for it. Um, somebody at Crisis was talking to a food partner from the food industry and they said, this is so amazing. It's been fantastic these past five days. I, I wish we could do it all the time. And the representative from the food company said, well, you could. There's enough surplus in the UK food industry to do this all year round. And that was where the light bulb moment came up. It's like, right, here's a real opportunity to take surplus food, which in itself, you know, is is an opportunity, but a waste and an environmental issue and turn it into social good. So that became a project at crisis. And then a couple of years after that, it floated off and where Fair Share gets involved is by talking to the food industry, whether that's at farm level, at a packing house, at manufacturing and up to retail and taking their surplus food. And we've got a network of around 25 warehouses across the UK, some of which we own and run ourselves and others. We've got amazing delivery partners on the ground who are other charities who just really know their area and really know their geography so that they're the experts rather than us trying to to guess what would be the right thing to do in Yorkshire or in East Anglia. Um, And then they're the ones that connect with local charities who are this really diverse range of amazing frontline services who then get a, a weekly food delivery from us. We receive it in massive pallet formats. And so it's our role as a bit like a, a charitable logistics organiser to break it down into manageable weekly amounts of food. And those charities are the ones who cook it up into meals and provide it alongside the services that, that they normally deliver. So we feel there's a real multiplier effect of taking something that's food over here, but packaging it up with some brilliant and really well targeted services in the communities that then helps about a million people every week. So mm. it's it's a great connector and a great way of using surplus food for social good. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's absolutely fascinating because it's not just an organization where you locate excess food and then redistribute it you're actually tapping into something that i think is very hard for uh organizations to mimic and and particularly at a government level and that's local knowledge it's knowing those drivers or those people who understand their area and allowing them the ownership and the authority essentially to to redistribute the food that you've packed up so nicely in the most appropriate way and that's that's very unique is that something that's been like that throughout the whole existence of, of Fair Share? It has, yes. And we, we call ourselves a social franchise. So in fact, whilst Greater Manchester is called Fair Share Greater Manchester, it's actually run by a brilliant local charity called Emerge, 
who, as well as doing the food model, actually have some other activities that they do as well. So sometimes we will be the sole focus and activity of what a delivery partner on the ground does, or we could be one of five things that they do. They've got so much in common, and we've got um, delivery partners who will do employability programmes. And in fact, some of the beneficiaries of the food at our local charities end up volunteering in our warehouses because they've loved seeing where the food's come from. They've really appreciated being able to benefit from it, that they wanted to give something back. And because we're now connected with retailers and big organisations, we've got a pathway of being able to build up confidence, build skills and potentially signpost towards employment opportunities that also include that warehouse experience or multi-drop driver activities, which is what we do is we send a van out that delivers out to eight charities each day. Um, you know, that's that's a really great way of saying, well, OK, we started with the food, but the end result could be employment. And, and what a better way than doing the whole teach a person to fish uh, <laughs> approach that, you know, really sort of makes it meaningful in the long term. What, what I want to get my head around, and, and forgive me if I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable in this this area, but th- there is a certain amount of uh, food that we waste every every year in this country. W- what would you hazard a guess as to, to what that is? Like a third, less than that, more than that? Yes, it's about a third of the food that we produce. I think we've worked out that it's 600, or it's the equivalent of 650 million meals. Um and that works out at something like 20 meals per second each year. Wow. So if, if you imagine whilst you and I have been talking, how many meals have been wasted, it's a bit like a Greek restaurant throwing those plates on the floor. It's yeah. it's that amount of food that no one sets out to waste, but it's mm. there. And it might be because the production run for those new yogurts is set up to do 100,000 pots each time, but they're just mm. not all making it through the supermarket. Um there is huge opportunity of doing something really meaningful with that. Absolutely. So that third of food that's wasted for a number of different reasons, some perhaps unavoidable, others, you know, definitely avoidable. Where are we at the point where Fesher and other organizations could be at the point of redistributing all, if not the majority of that share? And what where are the issues? Okay, well, unfortunately, I'd say we're a long way off. So I know that in terms of what fair shares activity is, we're about 7% of the total food that's available. And we're the the largest organisation. And there are others in the UK, and some are specific in certain regions, and some have a particular focus, uh, some mainly focus on farm level. But I would say if you imagine an inverted pyramid, the greatest amount of food that's available for redistribution is at farm level. As you come further down the supply chain, it gets less or there's less life on it. So we can do less with it if there's only, say, three days life on it. But there's more at the the top of the pyramid that's inverted. Um, and then you come down to retail level. And in fact, only 1% of the amount of surplus food that could be used for social good is in the supermarkets. So so actually it's much, it's like an iceberg actually there's more underneath the sea than there is above it um and and there's so much more to be done and we know as a point of comparison that France that's just across the water and therefore it's a really easy comparison to make because it's not far away and they have a very similar sized population to us they re- redistribute about 10 times more than fair share does oh, wow. and they've got a similar number of food manufacturers and a similar sized organization to fair share over there so we can see the art of the possible 
and that's what we're aiming for. We're, we're wanting to do so much more, but there are difficulties in getting there in terms of the cost of getting food out of the ground. It's a lot cheaper to leave it in the ground if you don't need it. The cost of transporting it, the cost of maybe working on it in a way that it can then be become used. So maybe there's lots of grain, but it hasn't been turned into flour or it hasn't been made into bread. So there are different interactions and interventions with food that all cost money. And it's just where that money can can come from. And in France, they actually have a, a government plan that helps support that. And we don't have that here yet. Oh, wow. OK. And and when it comes to, I mean, it's nice to know that France is almost like a benchmark of what is possible today, let alone in five or 10 years. But it is the aspiration for Fair Share to literally redistribute as much of that, for, or, uh, all of that food? And is that a realistic, is that is that a realistic scenario at some point in the future, do you think? It would be a huge ambition to have. I think I think we'd, we'd need to set ourselves up quite differently. And we're not in a place where we think that another 25 warehouses would be the solution. It's not about mm. more from that. I think it's a better capacity to get food in and food out. So actually food manufacturers mm. call this stock turn so that you're just more efficient at moving it through so that it, it keeps going through. Um, and France is there as a great benchmark and we know the points of difference that they have. Um, but I think not all food that's available to be redistributed is food that's needed. So actually Fair Share's phrase is no good food should go to waste because there is more bread that is surplus than we could ever eat as a, a country. Mm. So actually it's about the right types of food and the right quantities and most of what Fair Share is able to redistribute does match the Eat Well plate in terms of the categories of, you know, the right amounts of protein um, and produce. But I think it's, you know, there will always be surplus chocolate. Um, and, and maybe we don't need all of it. But actually, we say yes, please to, to chocolate, because if someone's been a rough sleeper and they've come into a daycare centre after a night on the streets, giving them a cup of tea and a bar of chocolate isn't actually a bad thing just to get their energy levels up. So I would say we're not, we're not going for all the food. We're going for as much as the right food um, that we can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w one of the reasons why I wanted to do this pod actually um, was to sort of give people an overview of of your activities, but also the, the grander landscape. And if I'm honest, I only came across Fairshire a couple of years ago, and that was because... As part of our culinary medicine program, we have a whole module dedicated to food insecurity. So we can not only upskill future doctors and current medical professionals about how they can cook themselves to look after themselves first and foremost, but also how they can elevate the conversation around nutrition in clinical scenarios. But it's also to understand the pressures behind why people struggle to eat well and or struggle to eat at all. And that's kind of where I, I came across Fairshay. And and my sort of knowledge of this area was so limited before, and I'm probably not the only one. So my question is, how fragmented are all the different charities out there at the moment doing incredible things? Is that hindering progress in this area? Or do you think there's a way to sort of encompass all the good work that tons of other organizations are doing? That's a really interesting question. I think... I think there's definitely fragmentation and I think that's because 
quite rightly. Sometimes what works in one area doesn't work for another or what works for one type of charity wouldn't work for another one with a different sort of service provision. So I think whilst we're all connected and and possibly some of our 11,000 charities are, are part of other networks as well because actually they've got something else in common with them, the ability to learn and share is massively important. And probably for Fair Share's next stage of evolution it is that sophistication of, of hearing more, listening more, and then going, right, we've we've heard you, and actually here's, here's something that we could do. So, for example, we know that some of our charities could take more food if they had bigger fridges or if they had freezers, which then enabled them to keep the food and plan how they use it differently. And so we're having conversation with funders around, you know, what can you do for white goods and, and how can we support so that we have a more than meal approach out to those charities so that it's about enabling them to do more with the food um, that we could get them, which then again goes back to that getting more in and and getting more out because we know there's more there. Um, I think as well in terms of fragmentation, something doesn't fit for everybody. And if, if my experience in the DIY sector is anything to go by, you know, there's there's a different way for having sheds in one country than there is in another country. So I don't think a template version of things would ever be ideal, but something that's an 80-20 of something centralised with maybe 20% local adaptation or the flexibility, you know, freedom in a framework sort of thing could be the way forward. And and listening more and, you know, computer systems, that means that you've got everyone's information and you can analyse it better and work out what worked best in that area or, or what made a difference in that one. That's more a place that we're getting to. So it's it's great to have a membership of thousands and thousands of charities, but I think looking for the points in common as then where we as a, as a charity, Fair Share can help make more of a difference. So t- tell me a bit about through the, the process by, by what happens when, when you get the food. So we, we have regular and daily and weekly conversations with um, partners in the food industry. And when they have surplus, we arrange for it to come into our warehouses across the UK. And it comes in in huge pallet formats that really need breaking down and turning into much smaller versions of of what a charity can use for their cooking. And from the minute it arrives in our warehouses, we have an army of incredible volunteers who help break it down off the pallet, put it into the fridges, actually get it on our system so that we know from a computer point of view what food we've got at any one time. And then they process the orders to then put it, make sure that the right charity is getting the right type of food on their daily delivery, but the volunteers drive the vans so that they're the, the face of Fair Show going out to those charities who do stand at the door ready and, and waiting for the, the food from Fair Show, which is always very exciting and, and very welcomed. Um, so volunteers are at the heart of what we do. And, and like any food organisation, actually, we trace and track all the food that we get in so that if there ever needs to be a recall or we want to know where something went or a local charity has allergens that they need respecting and they can't take a certain type of food all of that's logged in our system and so much of that work is done by volunteers who also hate waste want to play a part in their community and and want to give back and also mentor some of our younger volunteers so that they get used to working in a warehouse or, or thinking about what what jobs they want to go for in the future so the the volunteers are another way that we add value back to the society or community 
honestly, just listening to that process, you can just see so much value add from not just the experience that these people are getting from volunteering, but also, you know, all the different elements of the the face of fair share, the fact that people are communicating and, and directly with the end consumers. And it's almost like you've got like a mini Amazon process here where you know it's a mindful of you know issues you know perishability of the products and making sure it goes to the right people and like you said making sure that you have the processes to uh, recall any food and, and and monitor and stuff so it's incredible that you're doing that with a million a million meals a week it's a million people a week who who get the food and i think we were about 42 million meals last year in terms of total uh, wow. food out so we we call it squeezing as much social good out of food because of that as you say the added value each time so that it's not just the food in itself it's everything that that enables people to do and also connects them over so it is a it's a great commodity to work on yeah absolutely i i think also from the the perspective of an outsider or a consumer um like myself I, I now understand that there are a number of different organizations. You know, there's Magic Beans, there's uh, One Feast Two, there's uh, UK Harvest and Made in Hackney and all these incredible, incredible organizations doing wonderful, wonderful things. And I'm like, I want to help uh, at sometimes with a monetary sort of donation or with trying to, you know, actually volunteer some time, uh, however limited that is for people these days. It, where where do we start? And and I'm going to ask you obviously a bit later about your campaigns and and things that are going on right now. But where where do people start? It de- it depends what you want out of it, and I think that's it's a great starting point because there are some organisations like Food Cycle who are preparing the meals and actually hosting them. So if if someone's wanting to volunteer their time or to get involved, and you fancy cooking the meal, or actually you're really good at the social side of things. That, you know, everyone does things slightly differently. So I would say there's no wrong answer in terms of where to start. It depends on your motivation. It depends on what's local. I think at our heart, we're all trying to do the same sort of thing. We've just got a slightly different way of doing it. And the, what I know from Fairshare's point of view is that because of how we're set up and our operations and our efficiencies, it costs the equivalent of about 25p to get a meal out to somebody. And that's just the benefit of scale and um, what we're able to get in and get out. So I think in terms of efficiencies, that's not a bad place to start. Um, and and that's because, you know, we, we try and get deals here and, you know, buying capacity is always great. So if, you know, we've got vans that we're able to get, um, you know, we've always got a good deal for it. So from my point of view, I don't want fair share just to be sort of layering on costs and costs for doing things. We want to be as efficient and as effective as possible. Yeah, and I think that comes down to sort of your commercial experience, I guess. And it's it's getting that sort of that aspect right. What can we learn from industry that they do fantastically well and that supply chain, logistics and branding, marketing, all those different things that we we sort of take for granted and bringing that into a che- into a sector that is doing good and is actually going to improve the livelihoods of all of us because when we we're, when we look at the foundations for maker society, you have to lift everyone up, and I and I think that's why it's incredible work that Fesh is doing. Well, thank you on behalf of everybody, but I would say we we have the benefit of a some amazing people who've got food industry experience who've come and brought that with them, so that's really helpful. But also, we're in a place where because of the partnerships that we have with food businesses, 
they're giving us advice as well. So it might sound really mundane, but one of the things we found out that would help us move food more was using a different type of tray or to start getting some trolleys that could carry milk in an upright format. And these are things that the people behind the scenes of the supermarkets where you shop do this every day and know this. And as an emerging charity, we didn't have all of that knowledge. So actually it's, it's making the most of those relationships in ways that it, are knowledge rather than purely, well, you know, here's some money or here's the food. It's the ability to do things differently, but smarter and, uh, and more effectively. So, we're, you know, we don't know everything. We're, we're still learning and we're very happy to learn. Yeah, I, I think it's those, those little um, snippets of information uh, and, and, you know, th- those minor efficiencies that can have grand, grand impacts on the outreach of, of Fisher and, and all the other partner organizations. So that's that's brilliant to hear about. If, if we were having this conversation in five to 10 years time, um, where where would you want fair share to, to be, and what 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 do you what do you aspire the the goals to have been uh, ticked off? There are lots of charities that have been set up with the purpose of end this or end that, and I don't think we're in that place yet because for as long as there is surplus food, there is an opportunity for fair share to use it for social good. And whilst there is surplus food, we don't just sit back and go, yay, more for us to to redistribute, even though that's a good thing. Minimising the amount of food that's wasted is is as important to us. But what we want to do is to make the most of it. So definitely doubling and tripling what we do in terms of our capacity is is where we want to go. And it's working out what are the, the best ways, the most cost efficient ways of doing it. Um, so I would say in the next five years, it's definitely around doubling, slightly more than doubling. Um, and we've made sure that we've got the infrastructure to help us do that. And beyond that, if by then we, and I'd hope it was a bit sooner, actually, we've got government support in the same way that they do in France, that then opens up a massive gateway into more of the surplus food in the food industry. So I would hope that that's where, as a norm, the UK is helping to make sure that surplus food is is going to people in need and is being maximised. Do, do you have any government support at this point in time or is it all industry based and, and reliant on those relationships? It's mainly industry. We've had some government support this year because of the pandemic. So I think that was mm. a, a very different space for, for government to, to get into. And prior to that, we carried out a pilot to demonstrate the the theory or the hypotheses that we had um, to prove the point that actually it was doable in the UK in the same way that it is in other countries. So we did a very successful pilot and we've submitted our papers into government and, and shown the calculations and the, the workings down the side. Um, so we're waiting for them to come back and to, to assess the, the benefit of that. And, and is there anything that um, the public can, can do in terms of getting involved and trying to put pressure on um, the government to make that right decision? That's, it's probably a bit early for, for that, I would say, at this stage, <laughs> yeah. where we're, yeah. we're still in talks. And I think that that's the great thing is that we have an open door into DEFRA. We are talking to them. We've been able to demonstrate impact from our pilot. And actually, we worked with DEFRA to, to do some pure food requirement or procurement to get that out to the voluntary sector when the, the crisis and the peak of the pandemic hit. 
So, so we are hopeful and optimistic that those conversations will deliver that that change in in behaviours and processes. But if for some reason it doesn't, we'll come straight back to you and, and galvanise that that willing spirit. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for giving us an oversight of Fair Share and uh, and a bit about you as well. I'm. I'm I've still got that image of the uh, the vision board. <laughs> so please go ahead and do yours and I'd love to see it when it's done. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Emily and Elisa, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I can't wait to talk about Magic Breakfast and all the incredible initiatives you're doing uh, around this topic that has suddenly gained a lot of attention, but clearly, as you guys know, this is something that is very much pre-pandemic. Um, I, I would love to first talk about um, a, a bit about your backgrounds, um, and Emily, perhaps we can we can start with you uh, and your experience uh, uh, with with education. Yeah, so I used to be a primary school teacher, um, so I did that for about seven years. Um, and worked in a range of schools, I would say, in different kinds of areas of different demographics. But I think the thing that kind of stays with me is is the demands on children. They have to work so hard and the expectations are so, so high. So I certainly found if children came in and weren't ready to learn, you kind of couldn't really go anywhere with that. Um, so I think that's kind of where my passion stemmed from, really. Mm. And whereabouts did you you grow up? Um, just a few different places, but mainly in Cheshire. Oh, okay, yeah, I know Cheshire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, but when I was teaching, that was more Manchester, sort of different areas okay. of Manchester. And how long how long were you uh, teaching for? About seven years. So um, I started off in North Manchester, in quite a deprived area there. And I think that's when my eyes were opened, really. There were there were lots of children who come in with holes in their shoes and things like that. Um, and it's not something I'd ever really come across before. So I think that's where this shock began. Mm, wow. And, and and so your experience during that time, did, did it, is it something that you had the opportunity to, to get involved in as, as a teacher in terms of provisions of school meals or, or even you know starting the conversation uh f- from the educational perspective around um, provisions for for food um I mean to be honest not really it's not really something when I was training to be a teacher that was really discussed it was more about kind of behavior management and that kind of thing mm. so for me the pressures really were on attainment and I would say there wasn't a lot of time to really deal with those other issues it was quite separate so it was quite a baptism of fire, really coming across those issues when when your job, as you know it and as you understand it, is to purely educate. And while while you are sort of taking, you know, a, a holistic approach, I would say you're not necessarily equipped with the knowledge and the understanding that you need to help those children. Mm. And I wonder if you could could give me and, and the listeners a, a bit of perspective of what your role was like as a teacher in, in like you described a, a deprived area on like a day-to-day basis like what were the challenges what were the the daily tasks what were the things that actually kept you going so I'm always amazed at teachers and their resilience and actually how they manage such a manic classroom 
regardless of you know the the backgrounds uh, of where the children are raised and stuff but but perhaps you can give us some insight into that I think that there were a lot of different challenges there were a lot of behavioral issues I would say um and I mean I'll never forget there was a girl who uh, we were doing PE and she came to me and she said miss miss my foot it really really hurts I said, oh, why does it hurt? Let me have a look. And she showed me. She had a massive hole in her pump. And she'd obviously been wearing these, you know, every single week. Mm. And I had no idea as a teacher. I had no Mm. idea that she was going through that. So I think it kind of manifested itself in different ways. Like I say, you'd have the behavioural issues. Um, These particular children struggled, I think, when when it was too... Uh, kind of loose and they didn't have the security and the the stability mm. and the structure within the school day um but yeah so it was it was that really so i think as a teacher and i'm sure lots of teachers would um be able to to kind of agree with this th- the most you could do is really kind of empathize so you'd empathize obviously you would flag any issues and you would note down any issues and all the kind of safeguarding things but I think you would just try and understand where the child was coming from, which was a challenge when mm. they're expected to make the same amount of progress as the other children. And it just struck me as something that was really unfair, because like I say, I'd never really come across that. You know, growing up in Cheshire, in a nice area, um, it wasn't really something that I had experienced firsthand. But you know, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. And lots of lots of um, like dental issues, lots of teeth issues for those children um but i think that the thing that kind of has stayed with me as well is just that i didn't have the training i think and the understanding and it's not something that i would have been aware of so if magic breaks to come into that school that would have been quite an eye-opener i think mm, mm, yeah so it's it's almost like the organization that we'll get into a bit is is almost like an educational tool i guess for the for the staff as much as it is a provider for the for the for the kids i think it can be i mean i would say a lot of the schools that we work with are really nurture focused and they are really aware of the issues mm. but it's not necessarily something that is always covered in detail in teacher training i think that's yeah. the thing to kind of um be aware of but like i say the schools we work with are they're already really good they're already really on it um, mm. But there are so many pressures and there, there's so much noise, I would say, in schools. There's so, so many things that, that staff have to think about um, that, you know, maybe not necessarily educating, but uh, reminding, perhaps, I think sometimes, mm. you know, just that it is an issue and it's something that is worth addressing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned um that about dental um, issues as well, because I don't think a lot of people realize that there are tens of thousands of general anesthetic uh, uh, requiring procedures where teeth are extracted from children uh, every single year. And, you know, it is a huge issue and it comes down to, yes, what they're eating, but also an education on the parents as well. Uh, Elisa, I wonder if we could bring you in here as well about with your experience and, and how you get involved in, and sort of what led you to, to your job right now. I think a number of different things. So when I was much younger, so when I was in school, I actually used to volunteer at breakfast clubs for children who went to what we would have called disadvantaged schools. 
Um, and I think I was also, like Emily says, really immune to the kind of purpose of them. And I just sort of thought it was like a fun club when we would all kind of sit down and read stories and do a bit of homework. And I completely missed the fact that one of the reasons we were volunteering at this club was to make sure children didn't go hungry. But I think mm. that, you know, later on in my life and as I was sort of starting to kind of develop my career, my eyes were really open to this issue of children at risk of hunger and the dots kind of clicked for me together. Um, and I personally, I just go absolutely crazy when I'm hungry. I think I have like an absolute meltdown. I, as like an adult, have dissolved into tears because I didn't have anything in my stomach. So I think it's just really hit home for me how important it is for children to have that start at the day start at the beginning of the day. I think it's really interesting that um, you, you get involved in, in these initiatives and you don't really realize the wider impact of them, just how important they are and why there are construction foundations for so much support. Um, what, what was sort of your, your role before Magic Breakfast? Where, where else did you go after um, breakfast clubs and, and that kind of stuff? So I actually used to work for the civil service. Um, so I worked for the Department for International Development and then the Department for Business and Innovation and Skills. And then I sort of wanted to kind of change the way things worked in government and perhaps wanted to change that from the outside. Um, so I started working in campaigning and I used to work for an HIV AIDS charity. And then about two years ago, I decided I wanted to work um, for Magic Breakfast and kind of move closer to this issue. Yeah. And could you give us some uh, some perspective on, on Magic Breakfast, its foundations, its it's sort of core principles and, and purpose and, 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 and where it came from. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a really interesting kind of grassroots history. Um, as a charity, we started about 20 years ago now. So it's our 20th anniversary, although in some ways it's not something to be celebrating. Um, but we were started by a woman called Carmel McConnell, um, and she was actually doing research for a book and she interviewed some head teachers in Hackney and was asking them sort of all sorts of questions. And they told her how they were having to spend their own money on bringing in breakfast for children at, the, at their schools, because if they didn't bring in breakfast, the children were too hungry to learn and they couldn't kind of get on with their jobs. So we sort of grew from there. And that was 20 years ago now. And today we work in a thousand schools approximately. Um, so we've really kind of grown from that start in Hackney to become a national charity. And like 20 years ago sounds um, like a long time ago, but we're talking 2000 here. This isn't like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, like literally 2000, there were children's, there were school teachers buying breakfast for their pupils. Yeah. Um, and I think there probably still are school teachers out there buying food for their pupils. Mm. And so tell me a bit about like uh, the, the foundations for that. So once she identified this this need, this incredible need um, that was currently being fulfilled in, in patches by the teachers themselves, which is in itself incredible. Wh wh where were the next steps for, for Magic Breakfast? And wh where did the Magic Breakfast sort of name come from too? I think actually that we were named by a child and it's a great name. It always sort of opens doors for us because it's hard to forget, isn't it? Um, mm. I think Carmel began delivering food to those five schools in Hackney that same week. And she started by kind of um, putting bagels into the back of her truck, kind of driving around herself to those schools. And then slowly we grew and we started to kind of work in a more systematic way. And um, we started 
you know, actively recruiting schools to take part in the program. Um, And now we have a really solid kind of magic breakfast school journey where we recruit a school to be part of the program. And then we work with the staff from start to finish to kind of set up a breakfast club or whatever kind of breakfast provision works best for that school. We work with the school staff to make sure the children at greatest risk of hunger are reached by the by the provision and help the staff kind of identify which children those might be and reach them in a non-stigmatizing way. Um, promote the club, promote the provision to parents and beyond. And then we sort of work with the school kind of throughout the journey to just make sure everything's going smoothly. And we also, I've forgotten the most important part, um, we provide them with weekly breakfast food deliveries to make sure that healthy breakfast food is going directly to the school. Incredible. And and I, I wonder if I could bring you back in, Emily. When was your first sort of interaction with Magic Breakfast? When, when was that on your radar? I think about five years ago. Um, and to be honest, I was sort of transitioning out of teaching, uh, for various reasons. And so I was looking for something else that where I could still kind of use working with schools, my, my passion really that, you know, to try and level the playing field for schools, because that has always been something I've been interested in things being equal for all children, you know, regardless of their background. Um, and I remember reading the job advert for a school partner, which is my role, and I just read it and I thought, that is perfect. I thought, what is what a good charity? Because it's not a charity that I'd ever heard of before because it, it was really small. It was really, really small. So it's grown massively kind of over the past couple of years. Um, and I just thought that is that is so important. And that is that is something that I didn't know existed, but I can see a real need for it. Um, mm. Yeah, so then obviously I applied and got the job, which is good. <laughs> And so I wonder, is, is there a particular reason why the founder chose breakfast in itself? Uh, was that sort of the immediate uh, issue or was there some, some other thinking behind the breakfast? Because I agree, I, I think you know breakfast is such a foundational meal, particularly for young, hungry minds. Um, but uh, but I wonder if there was some some other thinking around that. Well, I imagine it was in response to to the staff bringing in food for the children mm. from the beginning of the day. And I suppose as well, because there always has existed this, uh, well, for a long time, this free school meal provision, but there hasn't existed anything for breakfast. So there was a real gap there. Um, but yeah, I think, I think to be honest, at the beginning, was it called Magic Sandwich? Was it? <laughs> it was a Magic Sandwich. <laughs> I might be making that up. I'm sure it was called Magic Sandwich because I think it was sandwiches <laughs> that she delivered. Not quite the same ring. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the same ring. <laughs> I think the other reason for kind of focusing on breakfast is that we know that some of the most important lessons are taught in the morning. And that child who starts the day with a grumbling stomach cannot focus on those kind of four hours of lessons before lunch. And some of our teachers tell us that they notice kids glancing at the clock or kind of going to the door to see if it's lunchtime and that that kind of anticipation and waiting for lunch can be really difficult for them, especially if they haven't had something since their free school meal the day before, for example. Mm. Uh, Alisa, I wonder if you could sort of paint the picture for us about how widespread this issue is of of childhood hunger uh, and how prevalent that is in, in the UK now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's far more prevalent than it should be, is how I'd sum it up. And it affects a lot of children. So 
Um, unsurprisingly, COVID has made this much worse. And we now think that about 14% of, ch- of families with children are suffering from food insecurity. So that actually affects 2.3 million children. So the scale, you know, it's extremely large. And um, at the moment, it's about one in three children that are eligible for free school meals. Whereas before the pandemic, it was closer to kind of one in five. Wow. So it's almost almost doubled this issue and probably going to get worse over the next few months. Yep, exactly. Nearly a million children have signed up for free school meals since the pandemic started. So it's been really exacerbated by COVID. Wow. And you, you, you both mentioned uh, something that I wanted to touch on, actually, which is how you provide provisions in such an incredible, gracious way that is clearly fulfilling a need, as as those numbers suggest in a non-stigmatizing way, in a way that doesn't make someone feel like um, a failure or the, or the family um, feel like, you know, that they can't afford to do that and therefore they are, you know, not, not being good parents or and the other sort of negative, shameful sort of spirals of how people might think about themselves. How do you deliver it in that way? So I think when, when we start working with schools and when we start supporting them, that's where the kind of school partner role will come in. So we would talk to the school about how they want their provision to work, how they want it to look. So they have a breakfast club before school, whether they have classroom breakfast. Uh, Some schools, they have bagels on the playground. So it just depends on the school's needs, on their staffing situation, lots of different factors. But then in amongst that conversation, we really focus on stigma and barrier. Um, So we make sure that however they choose to give out food, it's just not obvious that it's the children at risk of hunger who are having it so that no one will be able to tell, you know, which are the hungry children and which are the children who actually have had breakfast. So, for example, if a school does classroom breakfast, that has to be offered out to the entire class and it has to be there either for the children to help themselves or to be given out to all of the children. Um, If a school has a breakfast club and they have um, some parents paying for the, the kind of childcare element, Again, it has to not be obvious at all that any child is free. Um, so it, it just it depends what the school's doing and how they work. And I would say as well, you know, during the pandemic, when they've been giving food out, again, that's been really, really important that no parent or child has been made to feel that they've been singled out for any particular reason. So the amazing thing about Magic Breakfast is that we say to schools that they can have as much food as they need. So we don't put a limit. We don't say it's just for free school meal children. It's any child at risk of hunger. So a school can look at their provision and they can work out actually how much food they need to make it so there's no stigma, to make it so that they're not relying on a child saying they're hungry, because obviously that's the last thing that should be happening. Um, And then we just kind of continue to work with schools because obviously I think that there's kind of an idea that, that schools are static but actually they evolve and there's a lot of change and there's changing with staffing and changing with pressures. So that continued work that we do with them is really important. How has the journey um, from the founder gone from, you know, delivering one meal at a time or a few meals at a time to like one or two schools gone from now to almost a thousand schools? Like what, what does that journey look like? I think it's really been driven by the need among schools. So we have kind of publicized that opportunity on our website and then schools will kind of submit an expression of interest and sort of slowly, slowly that number is built and built. 
Um, but one one kind of really significant development is that the government was actually funding close to 2,000 schools to run school breakfast provision. Um, and really, unfortunately, um, the majority of that funding for those schools actually ended at the end of last year. So Magic Breakfast was really kind of distressed about that. And we didn't want kind of schools who had invested their kind of time and energy in kind of establishing these breakfast provisions to stop. Um, so we actually took on board a whole kind of bunch of new schools, about 500 so far. And now we're kind of supporting those ones as well. So we actually doubled our size in January of this year. Wow. And I suppose this is quite hard to toe the line between two, being too political. And, and I, I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable talking about the situation, but unfortunately food is political in itself. Where do you think the responsibility lies? I mean, Magic Breakfast is fantastic. They're probably doing a better job logistically from a stigmatizing point of view, from every touch point than perhaps the government could do at all. But where do you think the responsibility lies? Do you think we need to rely on charities or even businesses who have good at their core in terms of the values? Or, or do you think this really shouldn't, Magic Breakfast just shouldn't exist, this should be a governmental issue? Yeah, I mean, happy to get political, that's sort of my bread and butter. Um, I think that we can't rely on charities alone to solve the issue of child hunger. It's too big of an issue and it is linked to so many other kind of societal problems and it's not something Magic Breakfast can solve on our own. Um, so actually, I would say that responsibility does lie with the government and that in the same way the government kind of currently provides um, provision for children at lunchtime, the government needs to be thinking really carefully about how it provides provision for children in the morning. Um, and they were and are doing some good work, but at the moment it doesn't go far enough and they aren't reaching all of the children at risk of hunger at the moment. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think... And perhaps, Emily, you could touch on your practical experience of this. Do you think this is a, a, a sticky plaster for an issue that has its roots in some really core core problems uh, amongst our economy and amongst equality and, and society at large? Or do you, do you think, again, this, this comes down to the government and, and what we should be providing for, for kids? I think... First of all, I think it is such a complex issue. I think there are so many different strands to it and it's not something that I, I think there is um, possibly a temptation to to make it very black and white. And I don't think it is. I think there are so many things going on here. I mean, certainly for us as a charity, we're all about the child. So, you know, all those other issues aside, wherever the responsibility lies and, and the causes of poverty and food insecurity, we know that if that child doesn't have food first thing in the morning, they will not be able to learn and the cycle will just continue. So we want to give those children as much chance as they can um, to really learn and to be able to go on and, and get whichever job they want to get and hopefully break that cycle. Um, I mean, as Elisa says, you know, as a charity, we believe it is the government's responsibility to mm. um, put something in place for those children. Yeah. And, you know, look, looking forward, I think, with Magic Breakfast, I mean, you, you've had some incredible partners. Um, you're doing some amazing work in terms of the charitable front. I, I guess what I'd love to um, sort of give the listener an impetus to or maybe even some motivation to do is figure out how we can get involved. Because I think my personal view is the government definitely has a responsibility for sure in the short term. But I think at large, this is like a community issue. 
Um, and we really need to harness this sort of empathetic current climate to fix problems that have been going on for, for decades, as you guys have described. So I wonder if there are ways in which we can try and figure out solutions ourselves and, and how people can get involved. Well, I think one of the ways that we would encourage people to get involved is to really join us in our campaign for the government to kind of take more action on school breakfast. Um, so at the moment, for example, we're running a campaign calling for the government to make a new commitment to breakfast in the upcoming spring budget. So we really believe in the power of the individual. And as an individual, you can write to your local MP and ask them to support this campaign and ask them to call on the government to take action. I think by the time this this actually airs, unfortunately, the budget will have long gone. But in general, kind of using your voice as a voter and as a citizen and as a kind of part of this society to kind of call on the people who represent you to take action is the way I'd encourage people to kind of get involved. Yeah. And, and looking forward for Magic Breakfast, I mean, what, where do you see the organization in five, 10 years time? What, what, what is the sort of moonshot idea uh, for, for you guys? And, and what do you want to see? I think we're really comfortable with the idea of not existing anymore if we can solve this issue for good. So I think one thing I found in the charity sector is, you know, we would love not to be needed anymore. And um, I think we'll, we see a role for ourselves in kind of supporting the implementation of any kind of government policy on school breakfast. And as Emily's already kind of um, shared, you know, there's a wealth of experience and expertise within our team on what it means to set up a hunger-focused, effective school breakfast provision. So I think we see a role for ourselves in advising others and specifically advising government on that. But then, you know, we're happy to um, to take our seats and, and let this issue be solved if that happens. And I know that, you know, long ago when Carmel first started the charity, she had kind of hoped to wrap this up in the UK in a few years and, and go international. So that might be something we think about in the future. But certainly we could think about kind of Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales for starters. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fantastic what you guys do. And I think... Um, you know, if anyone listening wants to get involved, we'll definitely have the links <clears throat> on the website and stuff for Magic Breakfast and and um, you know different lo- uh, locations. I, I guess that the other thing is you know how we encourage um, corporate social responsibility to support projects like yourself, um, and, uh, and what other initiatives you think are really useful, such that you guys don't exist. I mean, do you have any other sort of things that you think would help? your campaign that might not be related directly to food provision, but might stem the issue uh, further down the line? Well, it's interesting when you say corporate social responsibility, because we actually have some fantastic corporate partners um, and the things they do really helpfully with us. um, One is food provision. So we benefit from some great partnerships um, with Heinz who provide us with beans Um, with Arla, who provide us with milk vouchers. I can't name them all, and I'm sure I'd forget some if I tried. But, you know, a lot of the food that we're able to supply to schools um, is provided as gift-in-kind donations or at kind of a reduced cost, and that makes a huge difference. Um, I also think that corporates can use their voices with government, not to keep banging on about government, but I've really seen the difference in the way the government reacts when, say, Kellogg's gets in touch with them to the way that the government reacts when we get in touch with them as a charity. That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I didn't actually appreciate just how important um, it is to have that corporate voice 
uh, knocking on the government door because uh, the the unfortunate fact is they do listen to industry a lot more than a charitable organization that is doing good, but perhaps has less uh, lobbying power. So that that's super important. Can I just say um, the schools that we work with and have worked with, they have just been so incredible. I think particularly throughout the pandemic, but even before that, you know, they they are really, you know, you talk about poverty being a community issue, that they, they are the, the core of the community and they have, you know, parents phoning them in tears because they can't afford to pay their bills and they provide uniforms for families. Uh, but they have just been so fantastic making sure that the food we provide gets to the children who need it without, like we said, you know, without stigma, without barrier. So um, a huge thank you to all of them as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for a school, um, you know, what's the process by which they approach you guys? Is it all via the website or their direct contacts? And like, you know, what, what's the scale of the, the schools at the moment? Like how many schools actually do require free school meals or, or would benefit from it? Or are we looking at every single school should be providing this? I mean, we have a, a lot of schools would benefit from it. I couldn't give you a number. Um, we can only support at the moment schools that have 35% or more pupil premium. So we just mm-hmm. focus on on the kind of, you know, schools in the more deprived areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, ev- even in schools in nicer areas, you know, there are obviously children who still need that. So mm-hmm. it's something that I think everybody, every school should be aware of. Yeah. I mean, I, I think back to like my school meals and stuff and, um at the time you'd complain about it but now looking back through the lens of hindsight you're like we're very lucky to even have been provided school meals and it's so important when it comes to nutrition nourishing your brain looking after you know the development of kids um, both physically and mentally it's it's such an important issue so i'm so glad there's um, organizations like you uh you guys are banging the drum as well and uh, and making sure this is getting through so i appreciate it very very much Thank you so much to all three of my guests who are opening up this conversation around ending childhood hunger. Remember, you can find all the notes and initiatives that both of these organizations are doing, but also some further resources as well on the Doctor's Kitchen podcast show notes. And I will see you here next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.